So how does this, uh, can you give me the um, Cliff Notes version of the protocols and how this works? Yeah, so far you're doing it wrong. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> and welcome back to episode 29 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. Uh, this week on our panel, we have Adam Keyes from Gowalla. Hello, everybody. Do you want to introduce yourself real quick? Hey, guys. So I'm Adam Keyes. Um, I uh, am an uh, infrastructure expert typist dude at uh, Gowalla. Um, I've been doing Ruby for several years and coding for, um, I don't know, 10 or 12 years. So... I'm totally OG or something. I don't know why people say how many years they've been coding. <laughs> I don't know. We also have James Edward Gray. Hey, everybody. Uh, good to see you. Uh, sort of. I can almost see. I had LASIK last week. Um, and I'm not a dude, I don't think. Uh, and I've also never impersonated the entire crew of the Starship Enterprise. Just that point. <laughs> Yeah, James' pick this week is going to be eyes. <laughs> All right, uh, we also have Josh Susser. Hey, good morning, everybody. That, that's about it for me today. Okay. <laughs> and I'm Charles Maxwood from TeachMeToCode.com. And, uh, yeah, let's let's get this rolling. So what we're talking about today is keeping up with Gowalla, and we're talking about uh, kind of their infrastructure and, and things like that. Um, so what what do you do at Gowalla that's, that's interesting Adam, I mean, other than tell people that they've been somewhere. Wait, 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 um, wait, wait. We're talking about Gowalla. I thought we were going to talk about um, rock music. Music. <laughs> yeah, it, it, isn't that the whole reason to have Adam on the show? That It is a very good reason. <laughs> well, we could talk about rock music, but I would what, probably take it into like soul and jazz too. Well, well, that's okay. I just want to know what I should be listening to. Um, you should be listening to Stevie Wonder, but I'll talk about that during the picks. Oh, okay, great. I can I can wait. Okay. Um, so. so the so the priors on Gowalla, um, it's it's a it's a social network for sharing uh, stories about where you've been and sharing uh, interesting things that you've found out in the world. So I found a great burger joint. Um, this is really these are the places you need to go get tacos in Austin, um, etc. The, from a technical perspective, um, we've been a, a Ruby sh shop from the start. Um, uh, the co-founders, Josh and Scott, uh, Josh Williams and Scott Raymond, uh, uh, did uh, one of the first uh, commercial rail sites. They did Blink Sale uh, way back in the day. I don't know if how many people uh, remember that guy. Um, and then they did a Facebook game called Pack Rat and then, uh, and then Gowalla. Um, and those have all been Ruby apps. Uh, Gowalla started life as a Merb app. And then uh, when I came on, we converted it to Rails 3 about halfway, uh, you know, right right at the beginning of 2010. So uh, right before it started getting into betas. Um, and we chose to do that because uh, I chatted with Yehuda and he said it would make him very sad if we didn't go with Rails 3 instead of Rails 2. So we did. Um, 
the interesting bits, the architectural bits, um, you know, we're Ruby on Rails. We run on EC2. Uh, we use Postgres uh, as our main database. We use a whole mess of Memcache. Uh, we use Redis and Rescue extensively. Um, we use Solar a little bit for doing our uh, geographic searches. And um, just lately, uh, I've been working with uh, Cassandra and working that into our infrastructure and moving uh, data that grows quickly uh, or has really low latency needs uh, into Cassandra. Um, so that's kind of the 20,000-foot uh, perspective. Uh, we deploy several times a day. Everyone can deploy. So uh, uh, if you're familiar with design, you've probably heard of some of our designers, Keegan, Keegan Jones, Tim Van Dam, uh, uh, Adam Michaela, uh, Drew Eaton are some of our designers, and uh, they can all push to the production site. Uh, which usually doesn't have comical results. Um, but every once in a while, we use them as a scapegoat. But we push uh, several times a day. Um, we do a little bit of TDD, not as much as uh, I would like. Um, and the great, but the great thing about uh, the scale we're at, you know, we see, uh, you know, less than 10,000 requests a minute measured by New Relic. The great thing about uh, the the traffic level we're at is that, um, if some if something does go wrong, if I push some uh, some software that's wrong, then uh, someone tweets about it within 15 minutes, and it's easy for us to either roll forward and fix it, or just take it out and figure out what we did wrong, and then come back to it. So I have a question about that: Is Twitter less or more obnoxious than Nagios? Well, that's a good question because Nagios can give you like uh, false positives, but Twitter is very emo. Nagios is not nearly as judgmental. That's as, true. Uh, but Nagios is really obnoxious. Anyway, yeah. but, but I, I know Twitter can be too. So yeah. I, I want to riff off of something that you talked about there for a minute. Um, I, I think I read a, uh, an article or listened to somebody talk about Etsy, and I think they do the same thing with uh, Ruby and Rails where they deploy several times a day. Um, and they, they give everybody – Commit, um, commit and push and whatever access. So ev and everybody can basically do anything they can deploy. Um, how, how exactly does that work? Do you do you have some kind of CI that you run it through first, or I mean, do you just push and that means deploy, or how does that work? Um, so everyone who has access to the Git repo, you know, we get their secure shell key, and they can just do cap deploy production. Um, we don't run it through any kind, you know, we don't have a, you know, that's as sophisticated as it is for us. Um, and at first, uh, when I started, when I joined at Gowalla, um, there were no tests at all and people were still deploying like this. Even the designers, um, you know, our support people can push copy changes, whatever. And at first this completely terrified me, you know, uh, you're just, uh, thoughts of terrible things going on in my head. But um, one of the really useful things I've learned is that you can come up, you know, everyone has been burned in a different way by not being rigorous in pushing software. Um, and so everyone has different scar tissue. And so it's easy to like build up this like uh, uh, combinatory uh, fear of pushing software. But in reality, like most of those things, most of the things that you're afraid could happen either don't happen or just aren't that bad when they do happen. 
Um, and so that was learning that and being able to push forward with that was uh, really liberating. But also, like we don't, you know, Goala doesn't operate pacemakers or nuclear power plants. Like the worst we can do if we push something bad is people can't sign up or check in, uh, and that's that's a nice safety net to work with too. So Adam, I have a question about um, about how you get set up for that. Uh, the, you know, I've uh, I've seen people who do uh, you know continuous deployment and in a couple different ways, uh, and and I like it. I think that you know when I've worked on projects where you can do that, it's it's awesome. But it it seems like there's uh, a lot of homework that you have to do to get to the point where uh, you feel comfortable just being able to do cap deploy uh, at any given moment, and that there are, and you've been talking about that, but there's also uh, sort of uh, quantum leaps that you have to make in your application ar- architecture every now and then that that uh, that that seems like if you just do cap deploy uh, would be a little crazy so can you t- can you talk about about how you adapt your your deployment strategy to be able to do things like like shifting from you know mysql to cassandra okay yeah. um so Another thing that we borrowed uh, from the Flickr and Etsy culture uh, to accomplish that is feature toggles. Um, so we have conditionals in the code that say if this feature is turned on, then you know uh, do this query through MySQL, and if it's not, then do it through Cassandra. Uh, or if the, probably they're converse. If the feature is turned on, do it in Cassandra. Otherwise, fall back to MySQL. We use James Gullick's um, uh, rollout gem for that. And so that gives us the ability to do it on a per-user basis. Uh, we can uh, create groups and do it on that basis. Um, all of our users, uh, you know, in our user table, we have a few admin, and then uh, we have a street team elite, which is kind of our crowdsourced uh, uh, army of people. Uh, people who correct our database. Um, so we could deploy it for them. We can deploy it. We can use rollout to, uh, to deploy to a percentage of users, basically just modulo on their user ID. Um, and so um, given those tools, um, it's re- it, it becomes pl- plausible to incrementally roll out that kind of change. Like um, when I've been doing um, stuff to uh, – move timelines, you know, move all of our activity feeds, uh, social data into Cassandra. Uh, the very first thing I did after I merged that was, I mean, I had a, a feature toggle around it, a conditional, uh, and I turned it on for just me. So I pushed it, turned it on for me, and looked to see if it worked. That way, only I ever knew if I totally botched it. Um, and that's uh, totally awesome. Like, that just to- it really changes your game as far as thinking about pushing software and um, getting courageous about pushing software. So then That's you, great. you would just complain to yourself on Twitter if it didn't work? Um, no, I have a, a system of lashings that I do upon myself uh, whenever I do a bug. No, I just laugh at myself. Do, 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 you, use the mor- do you use the mortification gem for that? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So, so one thing that I, I, I'm getting from this, and it's something that I really – um, I, I guess it just kind of occurred to me was that, you know, this continuous deployment approach is kind of a cure for cowboy coding because you can't just toss something in there and throw it out there. You know, you, if you're deploying several times a day, then if you're putting something in there, then it's, it's production code. It has to be. 
and and that's something that really appeals to me. How do you how do you determine whether somebody is you know somebody that you trust to be deploying to production? And the other question is is have you ever let somebody go because they continuously break the build? Um, so we we haven't we we just basically have made it. If you want to deploy, if you want to make a change, you can. And if you want to make a change, um, and you know how to operate a command line, then you can deploy. Um, we've never had to let anyone go, or even uh, you know sometimes we we'll have to be like, hey, you know maybe try this a little more uh, before you run it. But um, I would actually say it doesn't discourage cowboy coding much um, because I know that we do uh, a lot of cowboy coding and we even developed a terminology for cowboy pushing at one point uh, into the repo, but that didn't really stick. Um, I mean, in general, if, if there is an error, then, you know, it's on you to, to fix it. So if you push a syntax error, then you better be the guy fixing. No one else wants to fix your syntax error, but although that does occur. Um, so, um, I mean, mostly, I think, I forget who has this um, principle that we sort of borrowed, that our ops guy, you know, encourages us to follow this maxim is um, uh, don't, do not push to master and do not deploy and then walk away. Like, whenever... <laughs> yeah, right. the, it, yeah, so, so so this is a this is the question I actually just wanted to to ask for a few minutes. Is is we've been talking around the technology and the process for this stuff. What's the what's the culture that needs to be there to be able to support this kind of operation? Yeah. Um, so the culture, I guess, um, just needs to be you know pride in your work, um, empathy for for users. So um, if something is just sitting there broken for a long time then that's, that's not cool. Uh, so you have to be of the mindset that that is not cool. If you're someone who can tolerate broken things all around, then this approach probably is not a good thing for you to do. Um, what else culturally do we do? So, you know, like, so when we started, it was very much, when I started, it was very much uh, a cowboy get things done, you know, just keep pushing and iterating, even if you're iterating live. And sometimes you have to iterate live because uh, it's tricky to get data locally. Um, although uh, there's some gems that are in tools that are promising to make that easier to uh, reproduce things on your local development environment. Um, we have, uh, especially in our last release, we've added a lot more process. Like where now we do, uh, we do feature branches and pull requests and reviews on those pull requests, and that actually helps uh, a whole whole lot. Um, it doesn't. It didn't really slow us down too much. Um, when we started implementing process, I wanted to make sure that it didn't slow us down because that's one of the things I think that is special about Gowalla is that we do move so fast and um, we are design driven. So um, or, or visual, you know, like not uh, code design, but visual design. Uh, driven. So um, if the designer wants to change uh, some widget or thing seven times in a day, then there's nothing, uh, you know, culturally or process wise preventing us from doing that. Um, yeah, it's mostly uh, pride in your work, 
uh, being responsive to your coworkers. You know, we have support people, people who are watching Twitter and saying, oh, hey, looks like check-ins are broken or trips are broken or we can't do spot searches or whatever. And, uh, you know, we quickly triangulate on that. We're all in campfire all day. Um, every, you know, all the developers are in the office now. There's no one remote. So we should be like, yo, this is not working. And someone say, oh, hey, I pushed something around there. Or if everyone's boggled, then we all uh, gather around and uh, dig into it. Um, and basically being responsive to the ops guy. The ops guy is almost the ops guy or the support person uh, is almost always going to be the first one who knows something is broken. So uh, uh, that person has a lot of weight to be like, hey, you need to stop what you're doing and look at this. So I just wanted to say I like what you said there about uh, feature branches. I, and, you know, I see like lots of different Git strategies and scenarios and and uh, I think it was GitHub recently I saw a talk from uh, one of their guys, might have been Zach Holman, uh, that showed, you know, he's like, you know, we just do a really simple thing. We just branch when we're making a new feature, we work on it in a branch, and then when we, we're done, we put that back in master. And master is our deployable thing, you know, and and that, like, that's really as complicated as you need to get, you know, just... Just putting those features in other branches, then you work on them, and then when they're ready to go, you know, you can bring them back into the fold. And I think that makes a big difference. Well, it's interesting, too, because it's not just a collaboration tool. I mean, I have one project that I'm pretty much the developer on. And uh, when I'm working on a, a feature, if I put it into a feature branch and then... Um, my client comes to me and says, hey, there's this bug that's urgent that needs to be fixed in the beta. You know, I can switch back to the master branch, branch off to fix the bug, come back, put it back in, and then get back to work on what I'm working on without having to deploy half-baked code. Right. Yeah, I think that's a good point. So Adam has written uh, uh, several blog posts and uh, given a couple of talks on some of this stuff he's talking with us about today. Um, and there's some really good stuff uh, in these posts. Uh, definitely, I, I think a couple of them are required reading. We'll put them in the show notes. Um, but one of them, kind of along the lines of what we've been talking about so far, is Relentless Shipping, which is a blog post uh, Adam wrote in August, um, which I thought was just really cool. It's not very long, and it, it's uh, very succinct, but uh, I thought it was great. Can you tell us your idea of Relentless Shipping, Adam? So um, relentless shipping is kind of in reaction to two things I had seen kind of uh, floating around. Um, one thing I've noticed is that um, that there are, you know, in working with a lot of different developers and watching a lot of software being built uh, from afar and as part of a team, um, I've noticed that there's um, amongst all the other types of people, there's perfectionists. And then there's people who are extremely cutthroat. Um, and the perfectionists um, worry about every every aspect of it and are kind of weary to release something until it's just right. And they're kind of worried that this uh, these three specific people on Twitter might not like it or this uh, specific demographic of users uh, will be confused by it. Um, and then on the other complete opposite end of the spectrum, there's people who are just cutthroat. Like they'll push stuff that like – barely works or doesn't work at all. Um, but they're always moving forward. Um, and somewhere in the little, in the middle, uh, you're doing relentless shipping. So there's, 
uh, I, I took the the title is a is playing off of something um, one of the GitHub guys wrote about relentless quality, about always trying to uh, sharpen things, make it better, etc. Um, and I think that's an you know I'm all about that, but I worry that these that people who tend uh, to, more towards perfectionism would see that and may, use it as an excuse to not ship. And uh, shipping, in my in my opinion, shipping trumps almost everything. Uh, you can push something that barely works, uh, get it out there, see if people like it, and then just keep iterating on it. And that's going to give you something much better and much closer to what you really need than if you were to um, uh, keep it in the laboratory and finely tune it. <laughs> so, so I don't think a lot of people remember this, but that's pretty much how Microsoft came to dominate the world. That you know they would just you know put something together and ship it, and then let their users figure out how to make it better. And they still do that, don't they? Well, yeah, but, but that's <laughs> that's how they built their their empire. They just you know they had an idea. They they didn't care if it was crappy or what. They just shipped it and worked out the bugs later. Yeah, that's that's one thing too. I mean, um, it's not just about uh, having your users point out the bugs for you or having them find the flaws in what you did. But ultimately, and, and this kind of harkens to the um, oh, what is it the the entrepreneurial movement, uh, Eric Reese. Um, Anyway, startups. startups, right. And where, you know, yeah, they tell you to ship early. And, uh, you know, in some cases, it's not about the, the technical flaws, but it's about the flaws in your thinking as far as your business strategy. And if you put it out there, people will tell you not only this doesn't work, but they'll also tell you, you know, why it doesn't work. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I don't like this or. You know, I, I don't need this. I need this. Or why aren't you focused on this over here? Because that's really my pain. And, uh, you know, you can get the feedback that is actually going to make your business go as well as the feedback that's going to make your app work. One of the other great assets of it, in my opinion, is that it forces you to sit down and say, what what minimum part of this could I ship? Like, you know, it's amazing. Whenever I sit down and write down a list of, you know, I'm going to have this feature, I'm going to have this feature, I'm going to have this feature. And there are always these huge features and stuff like that. Like, you know, uh, I'm going to put in a comment system. Oh, and I'm going to need moderation for that. Oh, and I'll, I'll need to be able to, you know, have it where people can get emails when new comments are added if they need to and stuff like that. But, you know, is that really the minimum you need to ship? You know, you can... You can put in a comment system, and as we all know from the famous Rails in 15 Minutes video, that's not that much work, you know? It's um, it's very simple. It's something you can do. And then, you know, you're probably not going to have your first bad comment that needs moderating on day one, you know, or a uh, period of time. And your users may have ideas about how they want to handle moderation of comments or something, which is... Um, you know, a discussion you can't have when there's no comment system, you know, so it, it's almost like shipping starts the conversation, right? I think that's important. Yeah, and it's a conversation that you have pretty frequently as a consultant with your clients. You know, what what, what is the minimum thing that you need? Yeah, it, the, the great thing about that, whether you're talking to clients or people on your team, is that it... Um, you can reduce the problem space so drastically. Um, when we were adding photos uh, to Gowalla, 
Um, I was working on part of the backend upload process. Um, and I was like, you know, we we're talking about the data model. I was like, oh, and we'll probably need, you know, some kind of moderation. And so we're going to need, you know, basically a whole other system for moderating things. So people uh, don't, uh, you know, just upload Wang picks. And then, uh, you know, we, yeah, we'll need, you know, and so there's moderation and people have to be able to flag thing as uh, offensive or whatever. Um, but uh, in reality, we, we shipped without that and we still just do that manually. People say there's an offensive picture at this URL and we'll go and say, oh, yep, that's terrible and delete it. So, so I want to jump in here. What mechanisms have you guys seen work as far as um, streamlining your feature set? You know, figuring out what you need and what you don't. How, how do you do that? What? Um, so, uh, one thing we do is we measure a ton. So we have an internal dashboard where we can see, um, you know, how many people are signing up, how many people are checking in, you know, how many people are doing what sort of thing, and how that's trending. Um, so, uh, recently we made a, uh, fairly controversial amongst our user community decision to draw entirely drop one of the features that made Gowalla distinct, uh, when Gowalla first came out and very distinct against, uh, the competitor that we're always lumped with, uh, Foursquare. Uh, but it turned out that that particular feature um, was requiring a lot of policing. Um, anytime we did, we wanted to do something new, we had to figure out, oh, well, how does this affect items? We decided to remove uh, the digital goods part, basically. So uh, some people were very into collecting and trading these items. Um, but it turned, but you know, in doing so, a lot, you know, of just a few of them were severely abusing the problem and uh, kind of junking up our system and making the application less fun for everyone else. Um, so we uh, put in some code to measure how many people uh, actually use items on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, found that it was a, a, a dwindling, dwindlingly small minority of our users and made the, the, the tough decision to cut it. Um, Besides that, like I said, we're a design-driven shop. There's very much things start with um, our designers who are quite excellent. Um, so features and evolutions of features will start with a, a comp or something and kind of work their way out from there. But we also talk about uh, cool things we could do. You know, photos was a thing like that. Um, at one point, we had a feature uh where you could leave a note for someone at a place. And so it would say, Hey, Hey James, the next time you go to uh, this restaurant or the next time you go to RubyConf, you'll get a cute note from Adam. Um, and again, uh, you know, we built that out. We tested it amongst ourselves. We liked it. We built it into the clients and then we measured how much people were using it. And it turns out it wasn't pulling its weight. So, so we yanked it. So, so that's cutting out a feature maybe that already exists. But uh, I, I think I think another interesting conversation is the one where you decide not to not to put in the the moderation feature or not to put in this other feature. You know where you cut it out before you ever build it. Yeah. Um, is is there a good process to go through for that? Or I know that each problem is a little bit unique, but you know, is there a good way of identifying those things that maybe you shouldn't put in in the first go? Um. Usually it comes for us. It's come down to scope. We'll have some, um, you know, rough time frame that we want to ship something on, um, and uh, you know, 
we we have we imagine you know a, a wonderful beautiful unicorn filled world and then uh we sit down and think okay now we have to actually design this thing make it coherent make it easy to use and then build the thing you know do do the actual uh design work the front end work the back end work set up the databases etc um so usually it just comes from scoping um it's it's usually and and every once in a while we'll decide oh this feature clashes with this feature or they're not you know they're not orthogonal enough or this feature confuses that feature uh so uh we will drop it in that case so I want to steer back to architecture a little bit, if I can, for a while. Um, Adam mentioned that he's been working Cassandra in, and then we were also talking about in the relentless shipping uh, thing where, you know, you, you build a little bit in and there, and you get it in the infrastructure, and you go ahead and get it deployed and get it working. Uh, in one of your talks, uh, which was uh, mixing a persistence cocktail, I think you may have gave that at RailsConf, but... Um, you had a tip in there that I had not heard before and, and I really liked, and that was uh, doing double writes and dark reads. Um, can you mention what that is? Yeah, sure. So um, that's another thing uh, I like to attribute my ideas. So I'm pretty sure that came out of Flickr. Um, I bet Google does it too, did it, did it beforehand as well. Um, so the idea that here is you're bringing up uh, a new database or a new – uh, you're bringing up some kind of new system. Um, you need to um, uh, you want you want to at some point you're like okay I think I've coded this right, but there's probably edge cases that I am forgetting about or don't even know about. Um, so you need some way to bring the new system online while you're still using the old system. Uh, so the way we've gone about that. Um, is we start off by, you know, we have a, some feature branch um, where we just have two lines of code where if you're going to create a check-in, it says save this to Postgres, and then the next line says also save this to Cassandra if Cassandra is turned on. Um, so that what that gets you is uh, you can do real live testing with all the weird kinds of data people enter uh, on your production site but without having to worry about uh, doing um, a big giant leap cut over. You don't have to have some um, boil the ocean moment where you're like, okay, everything goes into the new database now. Um, so once you start um, doing those double writes, um, you know, and you've debugged all of them, um, then you start doing, uh, sorry, once, you start, once you've uh, finished doing the dark writes and you think that all that code works, then you can start doing uh dark reads. So a dark read is just um, pulling from some database besides your canonical one, uh, maybe checking the result, and then throwing it away, returning uh, the uh, what your, 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 the data from your primary database. So again, this is a way to uh, make sure that your code interacts well with all the varieties of crazy data that you have in production. Um, and it also, both of these also uh, let you um, Perform, uh, you know, load test your new system. So if uh, you start, if you turn on uh, double writes and the new database falls over, then you just turn off the double write and go out, go back and fix it. Um, same thing with the dark reads. If you turn, uh, you start turning on the dark reads, and 
those don't uh, and you and, and you can't sustain that throughput, then you go back, replan, push some new code, and uh, and try again. And you know all this feeds you know you wrap this with feature toggles, you continuously deploy it. All these things kind of play off each other. And uh, you know like one of the big things that struck me about uh, uh, how Kent Beck explains extreme programming is that it's a, a lot of it's about uh, giving the programmer courage to do uh, to do really great things. Um, and all of these things are kind of like the courage enablers for me at least in deploying uh, software to production and getting it out in front of everyone. That, that's nice. Um, th- I, like, I like the way you said that. Th- so, so I think part of, uh, part of what you're talking about is being able to tell the effect of your actions, you know, be, be, being able to monitor uh, you know, how good is this software doing or, or this change that I made doing. Can, can you talk a little bit about how you, how you detect what's going on in your software and your systems? Oh yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because that's uh, you know definitely one of the the pillars of making all this work um, is that you have to be um, in your app all the time, dog fooding it. Um, you have to be you know uh, watching your performance monitors. So I spend you know uh, several you know several minutes a day at least uh, just looking at. Uh, what our performance numbers are in New Relic, where are we slow, where are things, you know, what's our slow queries, um, you know, what can we improve there. Um, after I deploy software, uh, especially uh, if it's a big thing, I watch our performance numbers in New Relic like a hawk. So I watch that deploy marker, and if uh, if the graph goes up and to the right, then I start to get extremely nervous, ping our ops guy, say, hey, does this look normal to you, or did I totally botch something? And then do, he and I will go in and figure it out. Do, do, you, have, do you have any um, like company-wide information radiators that, that keep this stuff in front of everybody's face all the time? Um, so – at various times we have, like I said, we have like a dashboard that's more business metrics. Um, and at one point I used the uh, New Relic API to integrate um, uh, health checks in. So you could go, so anyone in the company could go click this tab in our uh, dashboard and uh, see basically uh, doom faces. So we either see, uh, you know, a 100% health guy, a bloodied up guy, or um, – a, uh, that is so uh, awesome. A dying guy. Actually, That's I don't awesome. think it was. It wasn't new faces. It was uh, our various avatars. Uh, our, our, at one point, our artists would do everyone in the company um, a sort of a semi-cartoonish avatar, and they had different color backgrounds. So blue was fine, yellow uh, was bad, and yellow was look into this, and red was uh, uh, this is on fire. Uh, oh, and I also put something at the bottom of the admin page that would say Gowala is feeling great, uh, Gowala is feeling ill, or uh, Gowala is on fire. Because a lot of times uh, people will be like, oh, hey, are we down? And it's just, you know, their Wi-Fi dropped out or their phone's being stupid or something. So this way people can go in the admin and say, oh, hey, Gowala is on fire. I should type that into campfire and let everyone know. Uh, th- that, is, that is awesome. I have not seen that before in, uh, in an application. That I, I so, so I, I asked about the information radiator stuff. I, I don't know if you've if you've been in the Square office 
the, their office in San Francisco is is pretty impressive, and they've had a couple meetups there. If you walk in, they have giant television monitors all over the place that you just like look anywhere, and you can see status information about all of their systems and how many transactions they're processing and how their uh, how their applications are running and loads and it's it's really hard to be in that office and not be aware of how everything is functioning. Yeah, at one point we had um, one of the TVs on our walls. We had um, Graphite up. We were using uh, StatsD that Eric Kastner wrote. Um, and so we were uh, pushing trend data in there so we could uh, look at the wall and see if some um, metric was erroneously down. Um, and that's a good canary in the coal mine. And we also had that right by uh, – the basketball court that we constructed in our office, which is a whole other thing. Um, So that had pretty high visibility. Um, Unfortunately that got claimed by the, the rules of entropy, but um, it's, it's a very useful thing. You know, at some point we should definitely bring that back. Having some kind of just trending data uh, on what's going on is, is super useful to figure out if you, uh, if a change, you know, if if a, if a product change you made is working or not, or if you botched something or did something well, technically, if people are checking in more then it probably means if people are checking in more and nothing in the product changes, then that means that we may probably succeeded in making that code path faster. Um, if pe- more people are signing up, then we've made that sign up flow better. Um, we also use a little bit of exception tracking, um, the problem with ours is that we got to the point where um, it becomes really noisy really quickly, um, and where like something like um, AirBrake wasn't keeping up with our error throughput. Um, uh, and it, at some point, we ended up uh, just going with New Relic for all for for exception tracking and performance monitoring, um, and that's actually worked for us pretty well. So, like I said, after I deploy, I watch the request rates, and I also watch um, uh, the exception rates. Um, yeah. So that that's interesting. I have to say first that it's not fair to put that by the basketball court. Because I would be walking over to the basketball court, see it, you know, tanking and be like, oh, crap, <laughs> instead of going and playing. Anyway, um, I'm a little bit curious about scaling and about some of the, the challenges of scaling things out um, as, as big as you have. Um, I, I did notice that you're using things like um, Memcache and uh, let's see, what else did you mention? You also mentioned uh, Cassandra and uh, maybe Redis. Uh, yeah. that, that can all be used to as kind of scaling things, you know, and rescue obviously to to offload things that can be handled on the back end that the user doesn't have to worry about uh, being synchronous with their request. Uh, I'm I'm a little curious though. How, how did these all fit, fit into the picture? And um, at what point do you realize that you need to add something like Cassandra or Memcached? So so the I guess the first step is that um, our ops guy is watching our Postgres database. And when someone pushes uh, code and all of a sudden the Postgres database is unhappy, um, you know, he is pretty quick to go back and look at the commits and be like, oh, hey, you did this thing in Active Record, and it's probably generating a bad query. You should go look into this. Um, he's also very uh, good about keeping us honest about when to use um, eager joins and when to just let that stay lazy. Um, you, it, 
you know, eager joins are good. You know, reducing the number of queries is good unless you pull back uh, a crap ton of data that you only barely use. Um, so, yeah, definitely our first step is always just uh, optimize our queries and keep our cats happy. Um, the next step is um, if something, if we just can't get it to, you know, where we need it in Postgres, which is our, you know, primary database, um, we're either going to cache it or um, uh, generate some secondary uh, representation of that in uh, something like Redis or Cassandra. Um, and also just using the right tool for the job. Um, Solar is very good for doing uh, faceted, flexible queries, you know, far better than Postgres. So we use uh, Solar for that. But it actually ends up that um, uh, Postgres to do just um, give me all the spots within, you know, a three-mile radius of this lat long. Um, we have a crazy order by in one of our queries that no one ever touches because it has a lot of crazy trigonometry in it. Um, and that's pretty quick. Um, so, yeah, you would think that we would be using, like, the post-GIS extensions or the geo stuff in solar, uh, which we do a little bit more now, but we actually got a long way uh, with Postgres. Um, as far as... Uh, Moving to Cassandra, uh, you know, Scott had built a prototype of um, uh, an activity feed service, and I got interested in Cassandra through that. And I built um, a, a training wheels project, uh, something for uh, a, a part of our data. We, you know, we audit changes to our database, um, and that table in Postgres was getting really big. So I wrote something uh, to store all of that in Cassandra, um, and that's uh, really uh, low-risk data if we accidentally blow that away, then it's not really that big of a deal. Uh, if it's unavailable for a minute or an hour, uh, life goes on. Um, so that was a really good way for us to get familiar with Cassandra, decide if it was something uh, we really wanted to use or was more hype than uh, its its actual quality bore out. And it turned out it was really cool. It has uh, very nice operational features and that you can just throw more machines at it. Uh, machines can fail overnight, and the ops guy doesn't have to get up, which I like a lot. Um, and so uh, from so from there, we decided we would start moving high-velocity data into Cassandra. So we moved our activity feed stuff because that data grows very quickly. And then just um, recently, we had um, some data. Uh, we were we cache um, uh, other social network, uh, the social graphs that we fetch from them. So say Twitter or Facebook, we cache them within the you know the appropriate uh, time uh, time restrictions, um, so that we can say, oh hey, here are your friends who are on Gowalla from Facebook, etc. Um, and that data was growing really quickly. We had that on a 16 gigabyte. Uh, uh, EC2 instance, it was getting to the point where it was going to keep, you know, it was growing very rapidly. So um, we uh, spent a couple days, rewrote that stuff in Cassandra, uh, rolled it out to ourselves first. That looked good. Then we started turning it on for 10%, 20%, 50%, 75%, 100% of our users. And then we got Redis completely out of that equation. Um, so that's uh, more or less how we go about growing things but we, do, we don't start with something complicated like we start with you know redis or postgres uh right. we don't go straight to cassandra because that's uh a little more involved and tricky for people to understand right i've been playing with cassandra i'm a little curious as to what you're using to connect with it which uh, gems uh i just use the uh, uh fauna 
Cassandra gym that uh, okay. Twitter started and that uh, is kind of a stone soup kind of community effort at this point. Yep. Okay, cool. All right, so I'm going to try to hijack again. Um, in uh, one of your articles, The Current and Future Ruby, you kind of talk about uh, the recent trend to kind of back to Unix and object-oriented design uh, in our community, how we seem to be, you know, oh, yeah, there were all these great ideas from the past. Maybe we should go learn from those, you know. Uh, and and I, 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 too, have noticed those trends, and I'm really glad about them. Uh, but then you go kind of deep into one, uh, the object-oriented design side, in your article, the frenemy, your frenemy, the ORM. Uh, which is absolutely one of my favorite articles that you wrote. So can you talk about why you said that the ORM was a front of me? Before you get into that, I, I, I'm going to have to interject here and, and do my typical Josh thing and define front of me. Yes. I was hoping you would say that. So a front of me, <laughs> you've never been in high school with girls. Um, guys can do this too. Um, if you've never seen like Mean Girls or something, so a frenemy is uh, someone who is you either treat as your friend, but you kind of keep at arm's length. It's kind of like keep. No, it's not like that. So it's uh, someone, something, or in this case, it's something, a tool that is really useful up to some point, but if you take it too far or use it in weird ways, it will totally slap you in the face. Um, so, I, so in this article, I'm saying a Active Record or any ORM really is really great for getting your application off the ground. If I'm prototyping something, um, I don't want to think in terms of queries and uh, mutation, you know, queries and updates and inserts and data structures. I want to think in terms of the domain. And uh, something like Active Record is really great for getting an application up off the ground, rapidly iterating it, um, and uh, sort of building up a domain model. Uh, that everyone can talk about and share. Um, but at some point, um, you know, either because you put, you know, at some point it gets to where you're like, oh my God, I really hate these models that we have. You know, you have a junk drawer user model that's like 2,000 or 20,000 lines long that has like every method in the system or uh, it becomes difficult to generate good queries or things become too coupled um, or, you know, the objects aren't cohesive enough. You, basically, it's not it's either not object oriented enough or not uh, scalable and operationable enough. Um, and so in this article and uh, in, in your friend of me, the ORM, uh, I shared uh, something that I had tinkered with that I think I really borrowed from delayed job. Um, there's a notion. So the notion was you have some object with an API, um, and then inside that object you stash an inner class that's the actual active record model, um, and the uh, the the outer class exposes an API into that model. Um, so you can uh, you know evolve an API, use Active Record where it's strong, but then if you get to the point where Active Record is punching you in the face all the time or uh, you're just not serving your needs, you can rip that mo you can rip that Active Record model out, replace it, and just change the API, uh, change the coupling between your API class and uh, the underlying model. So this, this article, I gotta stress, is amazing, and I'm gonna say it's required reading for everybody listening to this, um, 
I, I hear this talked about over and over again. It's really popular with like the, uh, oh, fast testing rails crowd right now. Uh, I was at Ruby Midwest last week and Uncle Bob's keynote was basically on this topic about how rails applications, the problem with them is they force you to think about them in terms of rails applications. Like if you look at the directory structure of a rails application, you see things like apps and controllers and stuff like that. And he, he showed us an example of one and he's like, so what is this app? And we had no idea, you know, all we knew was that it was a rails app, you know, because you, you don't uh, know where the concern is. And Adam talks about that in this article about how, you know, it, if you focus on the ORM and, and those as the models, then it kind of forces it to being a top level concern, which gets you thinking about the wrong things. And what I love is the code in this article is like super simple in that, you know, it's really digestible. It's a, it's not a huge blog post. It's easy to go through. And he does things like um, swap out the testing structure to just use a trivial in-memory hash instead of active records. So then he gets lightning fast tests, super easy. Uh, or then he goes on to actually completely replace the database structure with minimal pain. Really awesome article. I have to stress, everybody needs to go read this. So uh, the, I got a lot of the ideas by uh, listening to this pad podcast, uh, everything you guys have been saying. So if someone is just now coming on, I encourage them to go re listen to everything. Um, even if you don't uh, you know, have a good time to do that like Kent Beck does, uh, it's worth your time to go back and listen to all the stuff because uh, – was definitely inspired by what all you guys have been saying and writing about. Um, and um, yeah, I'll just leave it there. All right. Well, then uh, let's go ahead and do the picks. Um, let's start with Josh this time. Uh, okay. Um, thank you. Let's see. So I have a, I have a simple uh, developer tool pick, and that is for, um, for Quick Look. So if you're if you're using Macintosh or Mac OS X, uh, there's this great little feature where you can just select a file in the Finder and hit the space bar, and it will zoom open a quick look view of the file. Right. So we all do that with. It's a great to just like scan through a folder of full of uh, pictures or what have you, and uh, it, and if you have uh, have files that are not known to the uh, to the system, they just come up as this black box. Oh, here's the file. Great. Nothing you can do with that. So, but it's QuickLook is actually a, an extensible system, and uh, I recently uh, got tired of you know I write a, a you know my blog posts and a bunch of documentation in Markdown format, but QuickLook didn't know about Markdown, so I went out and I found a, a you know somebody had written a plugin for. Uh, quick look to be able to parse markdown files and suddenly now I can just you know select a file touch the space bar and I get to see what's in the markdown file rendered using the markdown formatting and not only that but that allows the uh, spotlight indexer to index the contents of my markdown files now so I can search for them uh, using spotlight so I'll put a link to that uh, that plugin in the in the show notes uh, and uh, you know, it's just up on GitHub. It's called QL Markdown. If you want to just look it up on GitHub, uh, and uh, and but I think there's if you start looking around, you can find that there's this whole uh, system of or ecosystem of people who've written Quick Look plugins. So it's worth checking out because as soon as you start down that road, you realize, oh hey, I can actually have 
uh, a lot more of the data on my system accessible to me in a in an easy way. So, uh, so that's my that's my geeky uh, pick. And my other pick this week is to get sort of hyper political. Is uh, my pick is Occupy Wall Street, and. I think, you know, I live in San Francisco. There's a lot of Occupy Wall Street stuff going on here in San Francisco, across the Bay in Oakland, at some of the some of the universities around town. Uh, I don't live in New York City anymore, so I'm, I'm a little removed from the main action there. But we got plenty here. And I got to say that, you know, if you're living in a town where there's not an occupation action going and you're not – you don't know people who are participating in it directly – you probably have no idea of what is actually going on because, by and large, everything that's reported in the media about Occupy Wall Street is completely off base. Uh, however, it's not too hard to to do some searching and, and Googling online and reading some blogs to see what's actually going on. And it's worth it to educate yourself about it. So I, I don't want to get too, too, uh, too much into putting words in other people's mouths. So I'll just, I'll just leave it at that. All right. Thanks, Josh. James, what are your picks? So, uh, when I was reading through all Adam's, uh, talks and, uh, uh, blog posts, he had this one line in his, uh, mixing a persistence cocktail that I loved. And it said, log profusely and get handy with grep said an awk. Um, and I thought that was great, a great tip. Um, I, I was late into my uh, developing uh, cycle before I really learned how handy all of the Unix tools really are. And uh, Adam talks about that, you know, our move back to Unix and, and how useful those tools are. Um, and so that's going to be my recommendation this time is, uh, is to finally sit down, do that thing you always promised yourself you'd do, and learn some of the command line tools that uh, you have available to you. I know that we tend to put it off and, and just not do it. Uh, I, at least I did. Uh, but when, when you do sit down and learn them, it's amazing how much more useful things become to you. Like uh, grep, you know, I, that was one of the things I mentioned you should learn. And absolutely you should learn. I actually wrote about this recently, but... Grep is a very powerful tool. Um, you got to learn some of the options of it, like uh, the ability to invert matches or uh, the ability to get context. And there's before context and after context. Uh, and those are all extremely helpful uh, when parsing log files. Like in our uh, Rails log, you know, you can, uh, once you find that person's IP address, then you can. Uh, grep for their IP address, and if you put some after context on it, then you're basically looking for their requests, and that's it. It's just one command line, and you're finding their requests. So, uh, grep is super powerful, and you got to figure that one out. But there's tons of other command line tools uh, that are awesome. Uh, obviously, I can't list them all, but just to give a couple of examples, uh, BC is an awesome command line calculator. Uh, that I use quite often. Uh, you just pipe some, you know, math into it and it spits out an answer. It's extremely handy. And the reason I bring that one up is there was an awesome article about it recently um, of kind of the gotchas in it. So if you want to see why I always give it the dash L option, then this article will tell you. Uh, it's really great. Um, so that's another one. Uh, another tool I've used uh, that I don't think people appreciate enough is XXD. 
It has two absolutely awesome uses. Uh, when I was young, uh, I used it to cheat in video games because you can do a hex dump of the game file and then, you know, fiddle some bits and then put it back uh, using XXD, which is awesome. Uh, nowadays, I use it to find encoding problems. Um, so uh, if you're uh, messing with some file that has a bad encoding and something won't open it, then I open it in XXD so I can see exactly how it's encoded and uh, basically troubleshoot it. Uh, so that's very helpful. So those are just some tools. Obviously, uh, your mileage will vary and, you know, you'll, different tools will be useful to you. But seriously, sit down and learn some of them because uh, they're super valuable. And if you want to learn some of them, there is this awesome new Twitter account called uh, Command Line Magic. And uh, the guy just tweets all these command line tips. Uh, how to put your SSH key up on a server with just a single command line or, you know, how to get an entire listing of the ASCII table or just these awesome command line tips. So everybody needs to go follow Command Line Magic because it's a super awesome account. So those are my picks for this time. Awesome, awesome, awesome. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, share my picks next. Um, really, the... There are two things that I wanted to, to pick. The first one is something that I've been playing with recently, like yesterday. I, I started adding it into um, an application that I'm building for a client, and the reason is is because it just it really simplified a lot of things for me, and that is Backbone JS. Um, I, I I can't really explain. Um, it's kind of a model view controller in JavaScript on your application, and. It's kind of magical. I mean, uh, if you look if you look at the way it's set up, and you're you're pretty used to jQuery and some of these other uh, libraries for JavaScript, then it's not so out there that you're not that you're looking at it and going, I have no idea what's going on here. And you can kind of see how they set things up so that it works. But at the same time, you know, it's it's really really handy way of of gathering information from your back end and and uh, displaying it on your front end. And uh, it works pretty seamlessly with the Ruby on Rails REST uh, implementation. And um, in, in, at least in Rails 3, you, uh, you by default have the JSON API pretty much built in. So it's been really kind of cool to have it all work out. In Rails 3.0.x, you have to add a line to your um, configuration and... I don't, I don't have it in front of me at the moment, but basically you have to tell it to, uh, to not put it in its own little, it, it nests it within its own object. And then, you know, and so if you want to get the attributes, you, you have to, um, reference another key in order to get those values. And it's kind of a pain in the neck, but you can turn that off. I had to Google it. I found it on stack overflow and I'll put that in the show notes as well. Um, the other thing that I wanted to, uh, to pick this week was the Apache software foundation. Um, we've talked about a lot of software that's in there, like Cassandra and uh, Solar, which uh, is kind of a, a front-end API manager for Lucene. And uh, this last week, I, I know some of you are aware I went to ApacheCon, which is their big conference, um, which kind of precluded me from going to Ruby Midwest. And the, the, the cool thing is, is they do a lot of things over there that are interesting. And I actually interviewed quite a few of their um, developers, and I'll be putting that up on the Teach Me to Code podcast, but uh, including the, the Software Foundation president this year. Um, 
and, you know, kind of explain the Apache way. And I think there are some things that we can learn from them uh, that I think are, are important ways of building community and uh, managing projects. I don't think we have to do everything their way, but there are a few things that I think we could learn from and make sense for certain projects. But the other thing is, is they just put out incredible software. And I just wanted to give them a, a shout out because they, they were extremely hospitable. And at the same time, you know, they, they just do some awesome stuff in, in keeping these projects up like Cassandra and uh, Lucene and Solar and Hadoop and, and some of these other uh, things that are out there. So um, anyway, th- those are my picks. And I also want to just just say that if you're looking at going to a conference, you know, that you travel to next year, you know, I think it's important to get to, you know, one or two of the Ruby conferences. But at the same time, you, you should branch out and see if you can get to one of the other conferences out there because there are a lot of lessons learned um, from kind of getting that other point of view. You know, the way that they deal with things in Java, for example, was something that, that I got exposed a lot to in at, at ApacheCon. And I think, I think there are a lot of things that we can pick up from these other languages and pick up from these other programmers who have all of this experience that then we can bring back to Ruby and just make our community that much better. So anyway, that's what I've got. And uh, we'll go ahead and let Adam um, tell us what his picks are. Okay. So my first uh, picks is a series of documentaries on uh, pop albums. Uh, it's called Classic Albums. Um, the two that I really like are on Steely Dan's Asia, that's A-J-A, and on Stevie Wonder's Songs in the Key of Life. And these are basically just um, – they, they break the album down song by song, talk to the mu- musicians or the producers or both um, or critics, and talk about how the album was made – and uh you know what were what was each song about where were these people in their life uh you know what led to them creating this particular album uh and the really really cool thing is that sometimes they will break it down they'll be they'll be the producer or the musicians and they'll be sitting at the mixing board and they will uh they have the masters loaded onto the mixing board and they'll uh you know start some song and they'll isolate a track or um or bump up something that you would never have noticed about a song. And it's a really interesting way to see how um, other um, creative endeavors are making things and see what they struggle with. So what the, what I love is to see how musicians struggle and how that's similar to how we struggle um, with creating software. Uh, you know, what are the, what are the similarities and differences and what can I uh, steal from how they're problem solving in their domain? Uh, there's also a really great one on uh, the making of uh, The Darkness on the Edge of Town by Bruce Springsteen. It's called The Promise. Um, there's this whole documentary about him after he made like his first uh, wildly successful album, like his, the pressure that he put on himself to make another uh, album and prove that he wasn't just a, a flash in the pan. Um, and like he, he wrote like 70 or 80 something songs and, you know, he only ended up with 12 on the album and it took like two years and there was, po- po- you know, music business politics going on and he's trying to get stuff done. And there's one point that's really great, um, where like at some point he decided he hated the way that the drums sounded. And so, uh, he, he basically locked Max Weinberg, uh, who was the drummer for Conan O'Brien, but it was also Bruce Springsteen's drummer. He basically locked him in a room and made him hit a snare, moving the snare around in the room, moving microphones around until it didn't sound like, uh, hitting a snare. So if you ever worked with someone who's like just 
a little in, too intense, um, then you'll uh, uh, you'll sympathize with that. Um, another thing is uh, podcasts on economics and finance. This is like something that I like to pay attention to because it kind of explains to me one of the the mechanisms of the world, like how the world works. But there's a lot of good stuff in here, um, especially uh, in just the pure economics about how to design systems, how systems evolve, um, how to observe systems. Um, basically, like um, economics is this topic where like people, you know, uh, men and women get in a room and say, we need to make the economy bigger. How do we do this? And they usually fail spectacularly because something happened. They, they make some rule and then it has unintended consequences. And that's totally like working with software. You say, hey, we should never commit after 5 p.m. And then you can't fix your software after 5 p.m. So um, there's one podcast called Econ Talk that's uh, uh, quite in-depth but very um, easy to uh, – it's not too jargony. There's no deep math in it, and he covers a lot of topics. Um, and so, you know, It goes a, a little astray from economics, but it's very good as a deep dive. And the NPR Planet Money uh, podcast is usually a little shorter and uh, more approachable. It was actually forked off of This American Life after they did the episodes on the financial crisis. Um, so it's, 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 it's very much in the This American Life style, but it's all about uh, you know, uh, explaining the world of – money and finance and economics and governance and all this stuff. Um, so those are really great just for expanding your worldview of designing systems and doing creative things. Um, technically, I wanted uh, the things that I've been into a lot lately are distributed systems and concurrent systems. So um, Evan Weaver has a distributed systems primer blog post where he's basically put together, um, I think, less than a, you know, around a dozen uh, academic papers on uh, distributed databases, um, storage techniques, um, communication techniques, design techniques, how to deal with uh, state how to think about uh, distributed systems. Um, and uh, just reading several of these, I haven't read them all, but they're all pretty easy to read and they all like just totally, you know, opened a whole new world of uh, how to make systems. And it's all very important for us as web developers and, and Ruby and Rails developers because these days, almost every system we build is distributed in some manner. Uh, I mean, if you have a web application in a database and they sit on and they're not running in the same process, then it's a distributed system. So it's useful to be uh, um, uh, aware of these issues so that when you run into them, you can recognize them and not uh, reinvent things poorly. Um, and then uh, Java concurrency and practice is something I've been reading. I think it's one of the uh, standard books on doing multi-threaded programming in Java. Uh, and uh, this, as I think, is going to be very relevant to Ruby developers as Rubinius and RVM and uh, as Rubinius, Ruby 1.9, and uh, JRuby become more prominent, and those get better concurrency stories. Um, not so much knowing the Java APIs, but knowing uh, the concerns. Like what I, what one of the things I got from reading this book was that actually doing threads and uh, uh, assigning work to different threads is actually pretty straightforward, but all the error cases, 
are extremely gnarly and uh, make my head hurt. And then you overlay locking with that and uh, waiting for locks and how to deal with timing out on locks and how to structure the locks in your program if you have to do locks. Um, that, that's just uh, you know all new stuff to me, stuff that I wouldn't normally come upon uh, doing you know uh, the mostly Ruby and Rails and web app stuff I do. Um, so if you're if if you like you if you're like me and James and you're really into this Unix and uh, object oriented uh, Renaissance, then uh, j- learning the Java concurrency stuff is a good primer until someone writes an equivalent book for Ruby, and that's it. <laughs> so, so Chuck oh. said. Chuck said picks, and Adam heard epics. Uh, <laughs> hey, I gotta add one to what Adam said. You guys know I love economic podcasts too. Uh, I've mentioned Freakonomics uh, in the past, and Adam's picks were excellent. One more amazing pick is uh, in that area is uh, there's an iTunes U um, class, Economics 113 from UC Berkeley uh, by Bradford DeLong. It was in the fall of 2008. It's basically the economic history of the United States. So if you want to learn history like you've never learned it before, uh, you should go listen to that. All right. Well, thanks for your picks. Um, every time that uh, Adam said do locks, I kept thinking of Shrek. So anyway, um, let's go ahead and wrap this up. Uh, we are in iTunes. If you want to find us, you can find us there. You can also find the show notes at rubyrogues.com. And... Um, We really appreciate the reviews that people have left. If you haven't left us a review, by all means, go ahead and do it. We, you know, we had 50 odd uh, reviews last time we looked and, uh, you know, really, really appreciate the feedback. Um, I've actually been meeting people who are listeners of the podcast at different conferences and at the user groups that I attend. And uh, it's it's really, really nice to get that feedback that that people are listening to it and liking it. So um, if you are enjoying it, then um, by all means, uh, you know, if you see one of us, let us know. And uh, if there's something else that you you would like us to do or, you know, some idea that you have for us, then by all means, let us know about that too. Um, Next week, we're going to be talking to Noel Rappin, um, where we're still fine-tuning on the topic. Um, But he is the author of uh, Rails Test Prescriptions and uh, has a lot of expertise there and in other areas. So, We're looking forward to that and hope you all have a great Thanksgiving and we'll catch you next week. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, guys. This was fun. I'm a little curious. I didn't have time to ask it, but I... I, I'm not sure what feature toggles are. (laughs) I mean, I kind of get the idea of what they do, but... But yeah. how you manage them and stuff, I'm, I'm a little curious. Well, um, let me throw in a, a link to Rollout because that – I mean that's what we use. And hopefully if anyone wants to dig into that, they can see that link and they'll get the idea. The other the other one we've used is Dolphin. Uh, but basically it's a fancy if-else, right? So you, you can say, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, I want to turn this feature on for – these subset of users and then so then when you use it it's uh you know it it term determines based on the current user should i kick in this feature or not so you can like 
do it for subsets of your people and see if they are doing okay with it or if it's freaking out and then you can ramp it up to other things. And if it's not working out, you just go in there and flip that switch and now it's off again. You know, so, oh, okay. So, 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 so it's kind of like what Google does. If Google Apps user tell them sorry. Yeah, tell them sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, well the, the, so, so one of the things about, about feature toggle packages is that they give you the ability to – Put the conditional logic someplace other than in your code. Right. So, you, so, you, so, you, so you basically have one conditional in your code, which says if rollout tells me it's okay, do this feature, and then you put the logic for populating all that stuff somewhere else, so that you can change that logic without having to redeploy your application and change the code. Right. Right. That makes sense. So, uh, you know, Te- Technoini wrote one that used, uh, I think, React or, or Redis as the backing store. And you just kind of like threw user IDs in there. And and it was real easy to either just like turn off all the user IDs or add all of them or put on, put in one for a particular person. Oh, cool. Well, that's good to know. I'm sure I will run into an instance where I need it. So you probably already have. <laughs> <laughs> 